Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is interdisciplinary thinker and author Jean Houston. Known for her ability to weave history, culture, spirituality, and science together, Jean came to Esalen to teach about quantum theory and concurrent realities. She and I spent much of our time together talking about her relationships with Margaret Mead, Joseph Campbell, Aldous Huxley, Eleanor Roosevelt, Deepak Chopra, and Hillary Clinton. Dr. Houston is the author of 26 books and has worked in over 100 countries. Jean Houston's mind should be considered a national treasure, says Buckminster Fuller, and I must say that I agree. It was such a pleasure to speak with her and laugh with her, enjoy her magical impressions, so without further ado, here's my conversation with Jean Houston. Jean Houston, thank you so much for joining us on Voices of Esalen. It's a real honor to have you here. Thank you. The great 800-pound gorilla in the room of quantum physics is consciousness because it all seems to be pointing to the fact that consciousness itself is the ground of reality. And that we don't simply live in the universe, but the universe lives in us. We are sort of God's stuff incarnate in a biodegradable space-time suit. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and in quantum physics, uh, the, the only expected is often the unexpected. It is crazy physics. It bothered Einstein. No end. What I'm doing here, let me tell a little bit about what I'm doing here, is I'm showing the implications of it. So, for example, one of the implications is, in a very strong one, is that uh, it, you can't talk about time, past, present, future, but there's the simultaneity of times. Time is, as uh, uh, T.S. Eliot said, time past and time future gathered in time present, and it's all happening simultaneously. Well, guess what this says you can do? You can shift the past. You can change events. L little tiny events. At least you change them so profoundly in your mind, at least, that it has the same effect or affect as if you have, in fact, changed the past. What is it? Mm -hmm. Could you bring me an example? All right. I was doing an exercise today in which we took very minor incidents in our lives. And I gave an example from my own life. I grew up in show business. My father wrote The Bob Hope Show and Burns and Allen and all those things. So I grew up on the road, but I felt myself to be musical. And so they immediately plunked me in front of piano, which was okay for the first two weeks, but then we were on the road. Uh, Dad was writing, the, writing these shows and Bob, say Bob Hope, and he was traveling all the time. We were traveling also. So I never had a chance to practice. So I would go to Mrs. Uh, Schumacher in uh, California, and what are you working on, dear? The little glowworm. And I would play, try to play it very badly. Da 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 da. Anyway, my dear, you have to practice more. Well, there was no way. Then I'd be in New York with Miss Fortin. And what are you working on now, Jean? The stinking little glowworm. <laughs> I couldn't get past this damn piece. So I figured, what if I had actually taken up the violin? Mm -hmm. And I could have shifted my whole capacity, because I'd be, I'd be practicing on the train, you see. So I, I did in my mind. And I also watched uh, movies of Yehudi Menuhin and the great violinist of the time and took it in. And then I really put it in my past that I actually had had lessons and was playing the violin. So 
I had such a feeling for it that when I finally landed in a place where I stayed for a while, I took lessons, real lessons. And they said, well, you've, you, you, you've had many lessons before. I said, no. Yes, you have. Well, not exactly. <laughs> and, and, uh, but I took the lessons, and within a couple of months, I was playing the pocketbook cannon because I literally put that pattern back into my life that I believed absolutely. See, belief is all in all of this. Yes. You're changing the whole mindset of what is acceptable. But I've done things like that for other people many, many times. We just did it today, and people were just stunned. At little tiny things, not major traumas. But that would be not, are you editing the mind of God? Are you editing the texts of creation or the the akasha field, which is now becoming a kosher term, meaning uh, the, the ground of being, essentially, which you find it in ancient Hindu form. I was the adopted daughter of Margaret Mead. Mm, yes. uh, Margaret Mead, I mean, I had a wonderful mother. She had a wonderful daughter, Mary Catherine Bateson, but that was our relationship. She sent me all over the world. She said, Jane, go out and harvest the human potential. And she would give me letters of introduction to tribal leaders or people who are significant in their own culture. And I began to study the ways different cultures did things in very different ways and then bring the essence of one culture to solving a problem in another culture. And then the UN picked me up, and so I've worked in 109 countries to date. Psycho-spiritual pursuits, yes. Yes, very well said. Would you speak a bit about that? Well, I'm more of a contemplative than I am a meditator. I will take an idea and I will immerse myself in it, or an image, or what have you. And that then brings me to a different state of consciousness. You know, there's really no such things as altered states because consciousness is always altering. So I find that when I think, I don't think in the usual logical ABC, one, two, three, four, I'm thinking musically or I'm thinking kinesthetically, that's a big one, or I'm thinking in terms of sounds, and that's allowed me to do things that... And also to adapt more readily to cultures than, let's say, people who are studying other cultures normally do. I I never feel uh, less alone than when alone, or less at leisure than when at leisure. (laughs) And then when I'm in the different cultures, the, the adaptation is... Now, I I adapt very readily. Now, part of it may be because I was a seven-month baby. A seven-month baby? A seven-month baby, yeah. Came on my mother's 27th, 28th week, something like that. One of the things that I find with being so early is that you don't have the same, they they suspect, myelin sheathing that you get in your later development. So you drop a pin, and I can feel it go through my system. Now, you, you can either be terrible to live like that, or you can do what I did, which is to become radically empathic to cultures, to people, to ideas, to things, you see, and that's what I've done. And that has helped me do a lot of the work that I do. I'm curious, when I think about a person developing their, their self, their sense of their style, their intellectual capacity, I think about the years 18 to 22-ish, and I'm curious what, what motivated you at that young adult phase? Between the ages of 14 and 17, I walked with an old man in Central Park. I called him Mr. Taylor, and he was something, oh, Jean, the people of your time will be taking the tiller of the world. But you cannot go directly. You have to touch every culture, every people. Oh, Jean, we are part of a great lure of becoming from the Omega that is pulling us up. Anyway, we walked off and on from my 14th to my 17th year. 
because he lived across, for many of those years, across the street from me. He gave me books to read, Adventures of Ideas by Alfred North Whitehead, Henri Bergson, Creative Evolution. It really got me going. The last time I saw him, he said, I, I, I brought a snail shell that I'd had for dinner the previous night, and he said, oh, Jean Escargot, spiral. And he talked about the spiraling of reality that was everywhere. It was sort of the fundamental pattern of the universe, galaxies and stars and all kinds of natural objects. And he said, we are all in a great spiral of becoming. What will you do? Will you be part of this? I said, oh, yes, Mr. Taylor. Well, years later, uh, right after he died, uh, well, no, it wasn't right after, it was four years later, someone gave me a book without a cover of the phenomenon of man, and it was too familiar. It was too familiar. And I said, do you have a picture of the author? And they said, uh, well, here, under a big pile of New York Times, she pulled out the picture, and I looked at the, the uh, cover. And there was my old man. Mr. Taylor had been Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Now, I've been very blessed. And uh, I mean, to a point that is virtually spooky. <laughs> but I was, I was, when I was young and I wasn't too bad looking and I was very interested in what they were all thinking. So I had all these elderly friends, you know, uh, Aldous Huxley. In my early, early 20s, 21, 22, I was doing some of the government research on the effect of LSD on human personality. And that's a long story how I got involved with it. So I was legitimate. And so a lot of these interesting people would come to see me. Alan Watts, by the way, he and I did a uh, seminar together a long time ago. I don't know, 64, 65 here. Uh, Alan Watts and uh, some of the old stalwarts, not, not Tim Leary. I have not nice things to say about him, but, but uh, Huxley came to see me. Beautiful, beautiful soul. I remember when he opened the door, when he opened the door. He was very tall, he was about 6'5". He looked like a man from the future. His eyes were cast over. He didn't see very well, and, but it was as if he was looking into levels and levels of reality. But I challenged him. His book, um, Island, had just come out and I had read it. And I said, but Mr. Huxley, here you create an optimal, ideal society. And then you cross it out at the end. You banish it in the last paragraph, which is what he did. He said that an army came in and destroyed them all. Why did you do that? He said, well, of course, you're right. I said, I'm right, really? Yes, you're right. He said, I haven't been feeling very well. This is January of 1963. I'm not feeling very well, and... My, my, help, my home burned down with all my manuscripts, so I had to recreate the whole thing. He evidently had other endings. How was it that you became involved with the research of, pe of people taking uh, LSD in the early 60s? Well, I was at Union Theological Seminary, and there were a lot of young theological students down in the book stacks who were popping LSD. <laughs> and I said, where do you get it? And they took me to uh, somebody who was uh, doing some of the legitimate research. And, I, and he was seeing things that I could explain, symbolic structures. He was a physician. Symbolic structures and mythopoeic stories. And I said, well, I know that. This is part of our cultural, not just our history, but it's what we contain within us. He said, oh, please come and stop, work with us. And then when I met my husband through this, and we wrote the first big book on it called The Varieties of Psychedelic Experience. Wow. And followed by Mind Games, which is doing 
the work without drugs. And that's where John Lennon and his wife bought many, many copies and then wrote a song for us called Mind Games. Do you find that there is some connection between the uh, experimentation with LSD and the, the quantum theories? Quantum theory, of course, also suggests multiple dimensions, not just dimensions, but realities, essentially, that, uh, and that we ourselves may be ubiquitous throughout the universe and variations of ourselves. And I remember, I've, I've only had LSD three times, the last time was in 1964, but I remember having an experience of looking into what I thought of was as a, the inside of a, a bee bower. And I looked in and there were hundreds of thousands, it seemed, of little, little openings, little cubicles where I guess they store the honey. But I would go into one, and it was a totally different reality, and then another, a totally different. And I did it, I don't know, nine or ten times. And it was, for me, it was a, a kind of presentiment of what you will find in quantum physics, mm-hmm. of that we live, in the, we live in a very tiny corner of the, this cosmic structure which has multiple realities simultaneously happening. And people, of course, here who have known these for at least 50 and 60 years ago are surprised because I don't age. I mean, I'm technically, I'm 43 years old uh, by my my biology, but I am chronologically going to be 81. And part of it is tuning to uh, another template, you see, and not believing the... you know, the, the cultural conditioning of what you're supposed to look like or feel like when you're 81. How old would you say I am? I would say late 40s. Yeah. So there you see it. <laughs> and I'm teaching my students how to do it, too. Remember, I'm also half Sicilian, and that's 4,000 years of olive oil running through my system. My mother was very similar. <laughs> so that's, it helps. I am curious about, you, you spoke about feeling blessed by the, the twists and turns that life has brought you in. And, it's and a few real bummers, too. Oh, yeah? I was once on the front page of every magazine newspaper of the world. You don't remember that many years ago? Oh, As I'm Hillary sure. Clinton's guru. <laughs> I lived in the White House for uh, a week every, most every month for a year and a half. During the, the Clinton years? Clinton years, I helped her write a book, or I helped her do it anyway called It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I have a long history of working with presidents. It was the Carters. And, uh, yes. You know, and it's... So was and my father was... Uh, uh, well, he said he was Roosevelt's uh, joke writer. I know he... <laughs> Roosevelt did use some of his... Was that the bummer or the, the pleasure? No, that was a pleasure. The, oh, with the, the politicians, yeah. Yeah, it was. A, it was. But then, you know, it was a... Slow night for news, and at one point I had said, "Oh, come on, Hillary, you have to, you have to really focus. Come on, who would you have loved to talk to?" And she said, "Eleanor Roosevelt." Well, I had known Eleanor Roosevelt and pretty well too, because I had been president of my high school, which was about four or five blocks away from where Mrs. Roosevelt lived, and Mrs. Roosevelt brought together all of us young presidents of our high schools to get us interested in the United Nations and in international work. So I had known her and had 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 wonderful conversations with her, and she actually once said to me, my dear, I rather suspect you're going to have a most interesting career 
But remember, my dear, that as a woman, professional, you can expect to be trashed. She didn't use the word trashed, I just don't remember what the word was. But remember too, my dear, a woman is just like a tea bag. You put her in hot water and she just gets stronger. <laughs> anyway, uh, Hillary adored Eleanor Roosevelt, had pictures of her all around. And so I said, come on, come on, you've got to focus, come on. What would you have said to Mrs. Roosevelt about making a better world for children? Well, I think she would say. What do you think she would say? Well, I think that's all there was to it. Suddenly I had done a, a seance at the White House. Oh. Took out half my professional life wow. for years. Because they made up a story, they made up a character, and they put my name to it. And I mean, even things that had some kind of ambiguity to it, they never followed through to find out. They played you as a new age it. practitioner. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the New Age Queen, sure. And uh, you can't do frontier work in human development without expecting that to happen. Mm. Because we are so force-fed by the culture to have certain kinds of rather rigid sensibility about our roles, especially as women, especially as women. Were you aligned with the Esalen Institute in the early... I was there in the beginning. I came through on a visit in 1963 Somewhere around 64 or 65, I don't remember. We were all here, Abe Maslow, you know, and, well, of course, Dick Price and Mike Murphy, who I tried desperately to try to find when he was here, but we missed each other. I used to know him. They, they were marvelous people because they had the background of the classical education, you see, and they were on the cutting edge of a whole new order of seeing and being. What do you think is a characteristic of a person who can step out of that discipline, can, can see a bit wider. Well, they're smart, for one thing. <laughs> but that's the base. I think, uh, yeah, but I think it's also that they have a sense of history and a historical necessity, that they cannot continue in a state of, uh, of same old, same old, or serial monotony, you know. I, I met Einstein, too, when I was eight. Yeah, this is part of my strange life, yeah. I went to a wonderful school where they took us to meet the great elders of the time, the school in New York City. And uh, we met Helen Keller, which was quite wonderful. She actually, I, I raised my hand, I was eight, yeah, to ask a question. We were so blown away by her power and beauty. And when they said, does any child want to uh, speak with Miss Keller? I hand my job up, had no idea what I was going to say. But by God, I had to speak to her. And I went up, she placed her entire hand on my face. And with the center of the hand, she read my lips. And with her fingers, she read my expression. And I, I, I blurted out with a child's savage honesty, why are you so happy? Because she, she was blind, you know, and deaf and she certainly wasn't dumb. <laughs> I remember she laughed and laughed. And she said, my child, it is because I live each day as if it were my last. And life in all its moments is so full of glory. She had rewoven the remaining filaments of her senses into a, a great web in which she caught reality. You know, she was the, the great, great midwife of souls, the, 
the helper of people in marginalized situations. It's wonderful. But then uh, we were taken across the river to meet Albert Einstein. He was very sweet, a lot of hair, a little vague, had two different color socks on, as I recall. And one of our smart aleck kids asked, uh, Mr. Einstein, how can we get to be as smart as you? And he said, read fairy tales. Oh, we didn't like that answer at all. Well, says another kid, Mr. Einstein, how can we get to be smarter than you? He said, yeah, read more fairy tales, by which he meant imagination. He always said his greatest quality was that of imagination. Okay. He imagined himself on the light beam. Yes. And uh, the math was added later, but he would, and often being helped by people because he wasn't a very good mathematician, but he was an extraordinary conceptual and imaginative thinker. Wow. So it seems there's this thread in the the work that you do in, in that it has a great deal to do with conceptualization and thinking outside the box. Way outside the box. You skirt the corners of madness. <laughs> and the beauty of quantum physics is that it does open up these areas, not that they're kosher, but there is a, a new acceptance of their possibility, you see. That, that I find. That's why I find it so thrilling. So there are concurrent realities. There's multiple. I mean, reality is multiple. It's always producing. It is prodigious, and it's prodigious in us. What does uh, William Blake say? Eternity is in love with the productions of time. Does it make you feel that this reality that you're currently tuned into, which sounds pretty fantastic from the adventures and whatnot that you've had. Yeah. Is there an element, if, if one believes in the concurrent realities, that this one is it's less serious, it's not as... Um, not I wouldn't say it's less no. serious. It seems very serious to people. <laughs> I think it is in its uh, diminishment. The biggest change is the rise of women to full partnership with men in the whole domain of human affairs with terrible backlash, but it is happening all over the world, virtually every country that I've been in, and especially women of a certain age you yes. know, who are past having children. They, they're they out there calling the conferences, scolding, uh, evoking, making things happen because they don't really care about the dangers to themselves or their reputation, and they really are out there. And that, I would say, is the biggest change of the last 5,000 years, and it is shifting everything. When it comes to the world of systemic shift and change, women almost invariably take a leading role because they have to, because their emphasis is always on process rather than product, making things cohere, develop, grow. And so that's been part of my work, to work with people in, the, in that way. But yes, I, I would say it's a worldwide phenomenon. Is there a connection between the work that you've done that seems anthropologically rooted and the, the quantum theory? Do they work in, in conjunction? Well, insofar as that we have so many different cultures and we have so many different realities that are spawned by these cultures. If I were to put you into the mind-body of, let's say, a Yoruba shaman, you would be in a very different not even to speak of the body, you'd be in a very different mind field. You would see things very differently. You would feel them. Though you're, you would have a sense of ancestry going back, 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 and forward. It would be like a, 
And I do an exercise where I actually have people, the realm of the fathers on the right, the realm of the mothers on the left, going back and back through the time past until you actually feel yourself way, way, way as the, as the, as the, as the you know, the, the, not the cutting edge, but the prow of the ship of ancestors. And you actually feel them. And I name them in different centuries and places. And then you harvest them all in. And then you keep one hand behind, and then there is a descendant of your mind or body a thousand, two thousand years in the future who knows what you did and you have that great sense of connection. When Margaret sent me out around the world and said, Jane, go out and harvest the human potential. Find out why the Balinese are all artists. Find out why the, this culture in West Africa has... Uh, doesn't have regular warfare or neurosis as we understand it. Go find out these things. I would live with these cultures and come back with all kinds of explanations, you know, or things that I saw. So, for example, in, in Bali, it's a, it's a ritual culture. It's a trance culture. So they would enter into very different states when they were learning how to carve masks or create art forms or learn the dances. And they were... They were translucent or transparent to the transcendent quality that was inherent in each of the works of art. You see, it was a different state of consciousness. And in those cultures, what role does self and ego play? Does it have... Not to the same degree. Now, it's hard to say that because with Western corporate mindset, a lot of people have had their minds colonized by that. But occasionally you find the other, and they, they laugh at you when you talk about self or ego, things like that. Ego, I mean, ego is only one image among the multiple images of the human psyche. Uh, we are not monophrenic beings, we are polyphrenic, and we have many, 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 many parts. I do an exercise where I have people really begin to delineate and discover there are many different aspects of their psyche. I mean, I use myself as an exemplum horribum. I dislike writing intensely, but I happen to be a very good cook because my mother, Maria Nunciata Serafina Grazzi, <laughs> marries Jack Houston of Texas. Mary, those are stink buds in the salad. Uh, Jack is just, it's just garlic. All good Italian music. Well, they're stink buds. It's what the old ladies down in Texas... The witch women wear around their neck to fight off the run at you, you know. So I became uh, the world's first fusion cook when I was about eight, making chicken fried polenta. You know? <laughs> As a cook, I don't have the same historical dread of writing, which I also have for very good reasons. But um, and then I, we just have so many different persona. And you know, if you look at ritual societies, the way they shift from one god form into the other. I've made a study of several of the most chronically successful people, whatever their work is. One of them is my old friend Deepak Chopra. But how was he raised? The little boy, little Deepak, his mother says, Deepak, you are Ganeshi. Yes, Mama, I am Ganeshi. I hit you over the head with my nose. You are, you are... Uh, Lakshmi. Oh, I'm full of money. I am Lakshmi. <laughs> anyway, she would take him through all these different things. Shiva. Oh, dance. Destiny. No, 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 no. And this is what, 
but he really still holds this, that he has, he's archetypally fluent. And this gives him a much greater range of realities. Margaret Mead told as a small child, you are a completely satisfactory child. That's what I am. I'm a completely satisfactory child. And she just grew up with a sense of confidence and delight in the exploration of her mind, you know. Mama, can I, can I make cheese? Sure, but you also have watched Bossy giving birth to the cat. She learned whole processes, mm. beginning, middle, and end, and then the, the resurrection. And so, uh, she, I mean, she was lucky, lucky, lucky all the time. I remember we would walk along and she'd be carrying on, I need this piece of information, I don't have it, and it's critical to my speech tomorrow. And then a woman comes up to us and says, uh, Dr. Mead, you don't remember. Because, yes, I do. Your name is Linda Nussdorf. You were in my course, in my class in 1947. You ne never finished your paper. And she said, well, actually, I did. I, uh, I didn't finish at school, but I went in and I took a master's degree. My dissertation was in, and it was just what she's talking about. Margaret says, you come home with me. Well, luck just followed her around. And I said, I've never seen anybody so lucky. She says, yes, I am blessed. And I said, well, why are you so blessed? Because I expect to be. And she lived in that state ah. of utter belief and expectation. And do you also live in that state? No, <laughs> not, not to the same degree. Um, I, believe in, I believe that I have been blessed with all manner of opportunity and people that require of me, and I'm quite delighted that this has happened, to be useful. When I asked Margaret, close to her at the time that she died, about to die, I said, what do you want on your tombstone? And she said, she lived long enough to be of some use. And I thought, boy, that's me too. How did you, let's play a game, how did you define yourself in 1970, 1980, 1990? I wouldn't say that there was any great sharp definition. Uh, it was always a flow. Was it? And I flowed into whatever was required and where the interest was. Yes. So and, and, the, and the synchronicities were. Maybe a better, uh, better question would be, what were you doing mostly with your time in 1970? 1970, I was writing books. I was doing an enormous amount of research in different altered states of consciousness. We had long since stopped uh, doing the studies of... Uh, the effects of psychedelics. Oh goodness, I think I wrote a lot of books. <laughs> we wrote mind games, we wrote listening to the body. I wrote, well, there were many, many. I was a professor at college. Uh, oh, I was traveling every weekend to some college to turn the kids off of drugs and onto their own minds. Mm. I, did, I did that every weekend. I am loving the. Um the way you're bringing characters to life here, and I know that you based your last book, A Wizard of Us, around the... Oh, there's been many other books since then. Oh, okay. Yeah, but they're Sorry. on quantum physics. Nobody reads them. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you know the work of Joseph Campbell really well. And I, I was knew Joseph Campbell very well. What I was he like? He was uh, delightful. He was a beautiful man. He was very athletic. He, he loved, he adored his wife. He had a beautiful life. And he, uh, see, you have to be careful when you ask me these kinds of questions. Some of these people I knew pretty well. Yeah. And I knew some of the, the darker sides, too. Sure. And it's not that he had a dark side, but he was an Irishman from the 1920s. 
so some of that was there. But he uh, he was always interested in life and living. I remember once we were walking along the 19th century town built in the 1870s in Chautauqua, and it was a beautiful day, and he was in ecstasy, ecstasy. This 19th century town, the sun, the ice cream that was dripping from both of us, and just sheer pleasure of delight. And he was, he had no sense of being, of superiority. He had a sense only of fascination with the way the mind work, the journey of the hero work, the journeys, the symbologies. Uh, I, I, I went to Columbia, I was 17, and I was allowed to come in to the meeting of all the professors of religion from all over New York uh, for Martin Buber. And I had met Martin Buber earlier that day because I was playing off-Broadway at Barnard, a cigar-smoking archduchess of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire who smoked cigars. Uh, and I'm not a smoker, but so I would have to bring my own. And uh, I was t- sitting talking to little Dr. Moover, who had a five-foot beard, you know. And he said, God in Himmel! Because I was so fascinated by what he was saying that I found that he said the car, carrot, I was chewing and eating my cigar because I was going to play that night with it. Anyway, a couple of days later, he is there to lecture to all the professors of religion at Union and Columbia and Barnard and Oliver. And they sneak me in, and I sit on the floor next to this very handsome guy. And Martin Buber's talking about the Deus Absconditus, the absent God. And this, the the very handsome guy is getting uh, noticeably unhappy. And finally he raises his hand, and Buber recognizes that, yes, Mr. Campbell, and he says, uh, Professor, you, uh, uh, Professor Bobo, you're using a word I do not understand. Yes, what is it? The word is God. You don't know what I mean by God? I, I, I don't know what you mean because you talk about God as being absent. Yes, absent. Yes, yes, absent. Well, I've just come from India where I've been for seven months where people are with God all the time. They're dancing God, they're playing God, they're drinking, eating God. It's God, God, God. It's just part of every moment of their lives. And little Martin Buber raised his arms in an imprecation and said, how can you dare to compare? In comes the host and says, well, I think what uh, Professor Campbell meant, what is what do you mean by God? But it was too late. We had heard what Omas said. And that was my introduction. Wow. At 17, to Joseph Campbell. Well, just to, to finish up, I was wondering if you could lead us, leave our listeners with maybe a word of advice for ways to employ the, the theories of, 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 of quantum physics and quantum theory that have helped you enjoy your life more, make well, it more it joyful. Is, you know, it's, it's, that, it's the old saying, I mean, that we don't just live in the universe, but the universe literally lives in us. Now you might say, well, that's all great, but how do I step it down to a place that I can feel for it? Said <laughs> it's the universe. And uh, then you go into archetypal structures. 
archetypes that are representative of various, the potency and the containment of certain qualities that are similar to yours or that you desire. I mean, since I was a child, I've been aware of a certain archetypal structure. It's a feminine archetype, uh, which I don't worship, but I admire the quality of it, and it's the goddess Athena, which has been with me all my life, even before I was born. And that's another old story. I would not have been born if I was going to be aborted. Um, my mother kept having these dreams about this Greek temple where this, this lovely lady <laughs> danced and sang and insisted that should keep the baby, and then and it turned out to be, that's what it was. But, um, so that you have, you have the entelechy, you have the great in-betweens, you have the, uh, the liminal, you move into liminal spaces, and there you meet the liminal realities that, what the Tibetans call the yidams. The yidam is the river to the source, so an archetype would be a, a yidam. I'm about to give a lecture on that now. Or, experiences, most of my work is experiential. And so I find that when you have a relationship to something or someone that has this, it is human, but it is beyond human. It participates in an amplitude of being that you don't meet necessarily every day on the street, although occasionally you do. And that relationship to archetypal reality, that then serves to you and everything shifts. And thus I had to call my autobiography a Mythic Life. Have you looked at that? No, It's a very funny book. Okay. Like it. it's, a comic, it's, it's called A Mythic Life. A Mythic written, Life by Gene Houston. Everyone needs to read this. Ago, that, yeah. And uh, so you find, or you just live in a state of wonder and astonishment where everything is eternity in the grain of sand, you know, immortality in an hour. <laughs> and uh, you read a lot of poetry. I read Mary Oliver because she's filled with this all the time. But you realize that uh, the quantum suggests that we are in a living hologram in which we are interdependent with everything else. And the choices you make of your thoughts, of your actions, of your uh, how you will live your life affect the universe at the same time in what the Buddhists call interdependent co-arising. Everything is co-arising with you in terms of the way you decide, you, you decide to take it, to speak it, to do it. So we are in an interdependent co-arising unity of being. And uh, if you can find some of the steps, that is the archetypal steps or the belief systems that help you to accept that, then it's not simply an intellectual shift. It is visceral. Gene Houston, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to rate us and write a review. You can also find all of our episodes at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well. <laughs>